0: But today, I wanted to do part two in our series called The Triumphant Mind, The Triumphant Mind. And I want to specifically today look at how we can love God with our minds. It's really how we love anything else with our minds. But we don't necessarily consider loving in thought and in mind. We, in the West, only connect love to an emotion. So hopefully today, God is going to put, shed some light on this context of loving Him with our minds. You see, the mind is a very powerful creation designed by God for God's ultimate glory. Your mind is not to be corrupted with the evil of the world. Your mind is to glorify God. That's how God made Adam and Eve, with a mind that would love Him, as they admire all that they could recognize and identify about God. So God created our minds, and He made it powerful. God planned for the mind to play an indispensable role in man's salvation, in man's transformation, and in man's fruitfulness. These are some of the issues we discussed last week. But let me show you just a few biblical outcomes in your life that is related to your mind. And it's like anything else, you know, like when I I started driving a GMC that was, God blessed me with that, it was given to me, I started driving a GMC, suddenly I saw all these other GMCs on the road. Isn't that true? That's so for you. Every time I look into a specific subject in the Bible, uh, suddenly, it's everywhere in scriptures. A few weeks ago, we were dealing on the subject of the fear of the Lord, and suddenly I saw the fear of the Lord everywhere from cover to cover. But as I was looking into the mind, I see the same thing. Your mind is a tremendously powerful instrument made by God for His glory. But let's look at some of the biblical outcomes for the person who knows how to employ the mind, how to be responsible as a good steward, a faithful steward, over this instrument that God has given you. Isaiah chapter 26 verse 3 says, You, God, keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. What you choose to do with your mind determines the degree of peace God is willing for you to experience throughout your life. That's what it's saying. Romans 8 verse 6 says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So here we see life and peace will come to the one who puts his mind on the things of the Spirit of God throughout his day. How many of you, even in a conversation with somebody in a store, maybe a a stranger or maybe with your wife, you know God is with you. You know God is here. Your mind is on the Spirit of God. You're You're turning the radio... And you're listening to a specific interview, and suddenly you go like, you know what? I know God. This is not right. You know God is there. and You know God speaks to you consistently, doesn't He, through your conscience. So here He says, to the one who sets his mind on the things of the Spirit, that one will have life and peace. has to do with your mind. Watch this verse, Joshua, 8, Joshua 1 verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and you will have great success. (coughs) So we see that if we keep the Word of God in our mouth, it'll help us to meditate on the things of God all day long, all night long. Your mind will constantly be on that which you speak. And when you meditate upon the things of God, It says that God will cause everything you do to prosper and to eventually be successful. So this verse promises that. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of the mind. See how critical the mind is? What you give your mind to Is what your heart fills up with and I've become allergic to television because of that issue right there what I give my mind to I'm filling my heart with if it's music if it's movies whatever it is I saturate my thoughts with I cannot escape my hat my heart responding to that you are inescapable from the things you put your mind on. So here the Bible promises you a transformed life based on what you choose to do with your mind, what you choose to invest in your mind. Proverbs 23 verse 7 says, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Your heart thinks through your mind, and so you will turn out to be. So the heart will respond to the thoughts that a person allows to lodge within their mind. Have you ever dealt with a passion that you hate having? Or is it just me? Have you ever dealt with a desire that you wish wasn't there? Or or am I the only one here today? (laughs) And oftentimes what we do is we fuel passions we don't want by thinking on things that we shouldn't. Because your heart and your mind are absolutely connected and overlapping. Very often, and I wasn't going to use this time here today to do this because this is not a lecture, but oftentimes the, word, the Bible will use the word mind and heart interchangeably. So I choose my thoughts, but my thoughts are what chooses, decides my heart attitude. The heart will love depending on what takes place in the mind. The heart will hate depending on what the mind is saturated with. I'll give you an example. A single mother can breed thoughts of honor or thoughts of dishonor toward that child's absent father. Most people that you will know, today probably comes from a broken home. And uh, so did I, and I know that my mother had the opportunity to plant in my, my mind thoughts about my dad that would have caused my heart to resent him. My dad could have planted thoughts in my mind about my mom that it could have caused my heart to resent her. Your mind and your heart are connected, they overlap. Some have allowed their minds to be filled with a specific worldview to the point where they hate with a passion their perceived villain. Politicians know this. They strategize around this. You see, your, your heart will love and hate, long for or resent, admire or abhor something or someone depending on the thoughts you have embraced regarding this person or that thing. So, the conclusion I want to make here is that the truth is your heart couldn't love or hate if your mind did not allow it to. Your heart only loves, hates, and resents because your mind allowed it to. The Bible teaches so much about the mind. It says that the mind has eyes. It says that the mind has a spirit. The Bible says the mind can be hardened. It says that the mind can be blinded. It says that the mind can be quickened. It says that the mind can be illuminated. It says that the mind can be perverted. It says that the mind can be defiled. It says that the mind can become reprobate, where good is bad and bad is good. It says that the mind can become defective. It says that the mind can be renewed But here in Matthew chapter 22, it says something about the mind that is very, very interesting. It says that the mind can love. So let's read that. Matthew 22 verse 36, it says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So I wanted to ask Jesus that question. Which is the greatest commandment, Jesus? He responds to them and He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all your mind. Nah, that's the million-dollar question today. How can I love God with my mind? How do you love God with your mind? Because, you know, you might go like, well, is this really important? It is the great commandment. Uh, it, is one of the mo- it is the most important thing that we have to consider when it comes to our spiritual life. How do we love God with our minds? Well, thinking is without question a spiritual exercise. We've got this. Why? Because, you see, Adam and Eve were told not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they ate from it, and because they disobeyed God, they were exposed to the knowledge of an evil that was illegal for them to No, they had a knowledge that was unlawful for them to have. And because of this knowledge that they had, they fell into sin and they were no longer compatible with our perfectly holy God. So we see that thinking is without question a spiritual exercise. What you allow to fly through your mind And what you allow to nurture in your mind, these things are spiritual to you. We also see that thinking is spiritual. Why? Because in Romans chapter 12, it talks about the renewed mind. And the renewed mind is spiritual, it's a spiritual discipline because it brings transformation in your life according to God's will. So even though thoughts are immeasurably important in the Christian life, Thoughts alone do not love. Have you ever had this experience where uh, somebody um, you know, is on the side of the road, broken-down car, flat tire or whatever it is, and you drive by them and you go like, yeah, "I really wish him well, you know." <laughs> Did that person feel loved by you? <laughs> no. Because thoughts alone cannot love. It has to be more than just the thinking. That makes it love, right? So thinking is not loving, but thinking is the means through which love can be awakened. I actually first had a thought about Tina before love for Tina was awoken. And the more I think about what I learn regarding Tina, the more my heart responds in love to Tina. So my heart responds to my thoughts concerning Does this make sense to you guys? All right. So, thinking alone is not loving. So, when God says that we need to love Him with all of our minds, He wasn't just thinking, He wasn't just saying that if you think of me, that would be love enough. That's not what He was saying. Now, to to understand this, we have to go to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And uh, I would really want to encourage you to stay tuned because I believe that today. God is going to show you as to why it is so difficult to prize Him as your greatest treasure in this life. People struggle with that. On Sunday morning, they'll sing, um, nothing compares to you, nothing compares to you. And they sing as if they treasure Jesus above all else. But that's just like for worship set, right? That's like for 15 minutes because the reality of people's lives is not that. So I believe that today God is going to show you why this is so impossible for people to treasure God as the most valuable, to treasure Christ as the uh, as the most admirable in your life and that you will see all things in your life as dung in comparison. To this treasure that you have in Christ, that you will look at your family and say, my love for you in comparison to my treasure is like it is hate. That's what Jesus said. Unless you hate your mother and your father, you're not worthy of being called my disciple. I mean, that's a harsh thing to say. But what he was saying is, in comparison, your affection to your family, in comparison to your affection to Christ or to seem like hate. And I'll show you why people struggle to live there with Jesus. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. The Bible says this, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. And the hearts of your descendants. Why? So that you may love Him. Wow. Wow. It takes a sovereign work of God to come to your address, reach into your heart, and circumcise it. Why? So that you may love Him. How? with all of your heart and with all of your soul, so that you may live." This is a work of God. People always ask, well, what's the difference between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man? If God is sovereign, what would my responsibility be? Because if He's totally sovereign, I have no responsibility. He chooses all things for me. Yet at the same time, we have a responsibility before God because we're going to be held accountable for every single thought and word and deed, right? So the question is, how do you marry those two? But here God shows us that He will circumcise our hearts so that we may, not will, but may love Him. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, it says the same thing. It says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You see, the idea here is that God will produce the change that is needed in the heart so that this new circumcised heart will have the capacity to love Him. Because in your fallen state, your heart has no capacity to love God. So, I was going to give you an illustration, but I forgot the Play-Doh at home. But I was going to... Oh, you have it. Look at that. Look at wifey. What a support. (laughs) Imagine in my left hand, I have a rock. All right. Are you able to... Manipulate this rock into different forms? No. Are you able to imprint upon this rock impressions? No, it's hard. It breaks. It crumbles. It's brittle. This is the heart of the unregenerate person. But then when God comes and He circumcises the heart, He actually takes out the stony heart, the Bible says, and then He puts in a heart of flesh. Now, this is like the most fleshly illustration I know, sweetheart, this is Plato. This is... Okay, I got it. That's all right. It's good. Anyway, I didn't... It feels kind of strange. But anyway, so God takes the stone heart, He takes it out of you, and He puts in a heart of flesh. Again, He says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love Him with all of this new heart that you have received. You see, the idea is... The idea is that God produced this change that it was necessary so that this heart can respond and can love Him, you see. You do not simply decide, hey, I'm going to love God one day because somebody told me to. That is not how Christianity works. We do that with our children. You've got to love God. All right, Dad, loving Him right now. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. You can't just simply decide one day, oh, my heart's going to just worship Him, adore Him, admire Him, and value Him above all else. Where everything else in my life will be equal to trash in comparison to the treasure that I have in Christ. Nobody just decides to do that. That is the sovereign part of God where He circumcises the heart, takes out, does a heart transplant, takes out that stone, puts in the heart of flesh, right? My question to you then is how now that we have a circumcised heart before God that is soft, moldable, and impressionable, how do we get this heart to love God? Well, thinking is not loving, but thinking is the means through which love can be awoken in the heart. seeing His eternal attributes, pondering upon those attributes, being amazed, standing at all in what you see and understand about the attributes of God is constantly all the while forming and fashioning and imprinting upon this brand new heart of flesh. And as you see the attributes of God and you're amazed at His power and His glory and His omniscience and all of the above, so your heart is constantly molded and starts responding to who God is. That's why the gospel that starts, that's been preached as in, hey, if you need something, pray this prayer, because then God will give you something. It's such a perverted, twisted, and upside-down gospel. It has nothing to do with you seeing God, knowing God, and therefore responding to God with your heart based on who He is. No, that gospel is you respond to God based on what He can give you. That is a very upside-down gospel, and it will lead you to one day leave God. When you think about God's acts toward you and when you're able to wrap your mind around those truths that nobody has done for you what God has done for you, your heart is affected. Your thoughts are writing on your heart and imprinting your heart. When you think about God's acts towards you, And you're able to wrap your mind around those truths that nobody has loved you like God has loved you. While you were yet His enemy, He loved you in such a way that He would give His Son. That is causing your heart to respond. But you have to put your thoughts on that truth. It's not just a fact. It has to be a fact that becomes a truth to you. If you wrap your mind around the fact that nobody has given you what God has given you, forgiveness, righteousness, redemption, Christ, He's greatest, well, your heart is responding. If you realize that nobody has forgiven you like Christ has, or God has forgiven you in Christ, nobody has promised you a future like the future God has promised you eternally. You see, when you get there, your heart can't help but be imprinted upon molded, fashioned, and pointing straight toward God. He becomes your highest treasure. And when that is true for you, then you will join with King David, as he said in Psalm 73, verse 25, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? Who have I in heaven but you? You know, I realize this one thing, that as a person grows older, and older and older, so he will find that he has less and less actual friends, less and less people who actually really care at all for you. But that's a good thing, not a bad thing. It's a good thing. You see, if you come to the end of your life and you have but two or three people that you know actually love and care you're a very wealthy blessed man because as you grow older you'll realize people don't care for others they care for self that's really what it is but that's a good thing why because as you grow in life you will realize now put it back in here you will realize (laughs) that eventually you will say with David who do I have but you God my highest treasure, the greatest value. There's no one else. There's just you. And that's why sometimes you go, oh, that's why your life gets stripped. People have words. Their hearts aren't there. And your life gets stripped. So it's a good thing. And I'm telling you that it's a good thing because that leads you to the point where you go like, all right, God, <laughs> I guess you're the only one I have. <laughs> you know, that's a great thing. That makes you way more bold and confident than you ever were when you trusted man, which is a trap, by the way. You were never to trust man, you were called to trust God and love man, your neighbor. So, when you are able to see this most precious treasure that you have in Christ, then you will do. What Jesus explained happens to the man who found a treasure in a field. You all know that story. I want to read. It's actually, you know that this is the shortest parable in all of the Bible? It's in Matthew 13, 44. The Bible says, the kingdom, Jesus speaking, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Again, it's like a treasure, say this is Plato, <laughs> hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So, he, he's walking through this field. I can only imagine. He finds this hidden treasure. He goes, all right, I can't just take it because this field belongs to another man. He says, he goes to the other guy. He says, how much do you want for this whole farm, this field, this, this acre? The guy goes, oh, uh, what do you have? He says, well, I've got two houses and I've got 10 cattle. He says, okay, I'll take all of that if you want this field. He says, I'll give you my ten, my 10 cattle and my two houses or whatever it is. I said, I really want this field. So he gives up everything to have that. Why? Because he identified, recognized, and discovered a treasure with, so mu- with much greater value. He treasured what he found. But today, people struggle to treasure Christ that way. It's a really hard thing for them. And the reason it's hard for them is because they don't know how to love with their minds. If they knew how to love with their minds, then their hearts would respond to that degree. Like the Apostle Paul who said, everything else is like garbage in comparison to this treasure that I found in Christ. So I came to the conclusion and this is mine that love equals admiring and love equals valuing. You see, you have to identify love in order to see how to love with the mind. So, when a young boy admires his father, he will look at his father and he'll say, "Dad, I'd like I'd like to go with you." <laughs> when he admires his father, He wants to be with his father. When he admires his father, he looks to his dad and he dreams about one day being like his dad. So when he admires his father, he wants to be with him and he wants to be like him. That's what happens to the person who truly admires another. And when we see that happening, when a boy goes, dad, can I come with you? Dad, are you going to stay home today? Dad, can I play with, can you play with me? Dad, can we be together? When you see a boy like that, somebody will look at him and go, man, he just really admires his dad, doesn't he? Or they might say, wow, he just really loves his dad, doesn't he? So we can see that love is to admire or to admire is to love. In the same sense, sense, when, when we look at our Heavenly Father and we see His attributes, We are taken back with admiration. That's why young boys will always have this argument, my dad will beat your dad. Why? Because he's seen his dad strong, and he thinks his dad is the hero of, you know, the greatest hero in the world. My dad will take out your dad. He admires his dad's strength. He's confident about his dad's strength. In the same way, you know, people need to look at us, and and they need to go like, man, he really admires God. Man, that guy wants to be with God all the time. He must love God. He must admire God. When we look at our Heavenly Father and we see His attributes, we are taken back in our admiration of just how perfect He is. We are, we are, we are taken with and we stand in awe at His majesty. And we stand in awe at just how powerful God is. And we admire His graciousness and His loving kindness and His caring toward us. But you know, for most people, it doesn't touch their heart because they actually don't know God's attributes. It's not something that they are familiar with. They might be able to recite something, but they haven't yet wrapped their mind around that attribute. It's not a reality to them. You see, our admiration of Him is what causes us to want to be with Him. Our admiration of God is what causes us to want to be like Him, just like a child when He admires His Father. So people should look at you and me here at Christ Nation and go, wow, (laughs) these people really love God. Look at how they sing, even without instruments and lights, because to them it's about who they sing to. You see what I'm saying? We want, we want great praise and worship. I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm just saying the reason why we worship isn't because the band is good. It's because God is great. Amen? People should look at you and me and say, wow, he really loves God. She really loves God because they see how we admire God. But how could you admire the attributes of a father if you do not think, ponder, consider His attributes, His works, His promises? So the first and foremost reason thinking and loving are connected is that we cannot admire God. Therefore, we cannot love God with first first knowing Him. That's why we struggle to admire Him, because we don't know Him. Why don't we know Him is because it's hard to actually go to the Scriptures and study, as one of the downfalls of the West is it really – there is no demand placed upon diligent thought. Nobody has to think anymore. You communicate with emojis. You go to school. And I remember Tina and I, when we went to uh, see Robert's Public School, um, when we went to one of the, you know, parent days, one of the things Tina picked up was that there was no spelling. We go, like, why is there no spelling? So the teacher says, well, you might want to talk to the principal about that. Went to the principal, put up a, set up an appointment and said to her, so, ma'am, just wanted to know why we'd love our son to one day spell. Um, don't they need to spell? She goes, No, we don't do spelling. Well, why not? She says, Because we have autocorrect. I kid you not. That's what she said. That is Schomburg School for you, school district. I'm like, Have you not seen what autocorrect does, man? <laughs> I wanted to say hello, Basui. And when I, t- when I sent it, it said hell, Basui. <laughs> you got to watch out for auto. <laughs> Well, what I'm saying is our culture no longer places a demand on people to have to think. People just spew what they, th- what they feel. And so, that's not God's people. That's not God's family. God has given us a mind so that we can think, so that we can consider, so that we can ponder, so that we can med- meditate on. Why? So that, our m- so that our hearts can be formed and fashioned. Because your thoughts is the avenue through which God touches your heart. So the first and foremost reason thinking and loving are connected is because we cannot admire God without first knowing God. Therefore, to love God with all of our mind means this. All right, you ready? Here it goes. Engaging all of your thought power to know God as best you can in order to admire Him for all that He is. To admire God with your heart for all that He is. Secondly, to love God with all of your mind means to engage all of your thought power, to know God as best as you can in order to Value Him for all that He's worth to you. Without putting thought into who He is and what He's done for you, you couldn't admire Him for who He is and value Him for what He's done for you. Our minds are powerful. John Piper said this, and I quote, God is not honored by, God, by groundless love. God is not honored by groundless love. You see, if we do not know anything about God, then there is nothing in our minds to awaken love for God. I said it this way. If your love for God does not come from knowing God, then there is nothing, that, there is nothing you can point to that says, I love God. You know, unless there is something you know about God that you love. If we feel something about God, but we do not know anything about God, and that feeling is not a feeling of true love toward God. It's a love towards your imagination of a God that you think exists. If there's, You see, if there is a, an emotion where people cry and people sing and people clap their hands and people shout and jump up and down and say amen and hallelujah, without knowing God, by knowing His attributes and recognizing Him as as expressed in Christ Jesus, then that person is crying and singing and clapping their hands and having an emotional party, shouting hallelujah to a God of their imagination. That's why John four twenty four actually says this. It says that God is spirit, all right? Therefore, those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit, but also in truth. What truth? The truth about who He is. You got to worship him for who he is, not because of the feeling you have. Loving God with all of your mind means that our thinking is completely engaged to do all it can to awaken and express the fact of treasuring God above all things. I really believe that in the West, and we're coming in for a landing, in the West we really have a problem with prizing God. We really have a problem with valuing God. We really have a problem with seeing Him as all-surpassing when we equate Him to all other things. So loving God with all your mind means using your mind to grasp and to understand and to evaluate, to acknowledge the value that God has in your life. And if you really have an understanding of eternity and what God saved you from and who God saved you for, if you really have an understanding of that, then that value that you find in Christ will surpass all other things in your life, whether it be goals, whether it be finances, whether it be treasures, whether it be relationships. Knowing God, knowing who God is and what He's like, knowing His attributes through much focused study and diligent consideration to the point where your mind actually demands your heart to treasure Him. You see, right now, many people's hearts treasure other things because their minds allow them to treasure other things. We have to come to the place where we love God with our minds. How? where our minds demand our hearts to treasure Him above all other things. And this is why the Apostle Paul said, more than that, in Philippians 3.8, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. I count everything to be loss in view of the surpassing value of Christ. Paul loved God with his mind, and that caused his heart to give him this perspective of how Christ is the treasure above all, and everything else that you've worked for in your life is like trash in comparison to that treasure you have in Christ. Matthew 6, 21 says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Watch out what you do with your mind because it determines your heart. And from the heart, all the issues of life flows. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. Father, thank You so much for Your Word today. Your Word is an encouragement. Your Word is a warning. Your Word is wisdom. Your Word gives direction. Your Word beckons us. Your Word calls us toward you, and you are telling us today, God, that we ought to love you with our minds to the point where our minds demand our hearts to treasure you above all else. Thank you, God, that you will touch our hearts today as we put our minds upon all that you are and all that you do for us While every head's bowed and every eye's closed, and those of you who are in person and those of you who are watching online, if you feel like you're standing on the outside looking in, that feeling right there is God knocking on the door of your heart. If you're saying, "Ah, I need to make right with God, that's God knocking on the door of your heart. Come to God today. How do I come to God? By turning your back on yourself, saying, self, I don't live for you anymore. Self, I don't trust you to be good enough to save me. Turn your back on self. Jesus said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he has to deny self. So if you want to come to God today, turn your back on self. Stop thinking that self is so important. No, We should not think of self at all so that we can think of God for who He is. Turn your back on self. Well, turn to what? Turn to Christ. Look upon Him and find the beauty in what He did for you on the cross. That God would give Him God's precious prize. Give Him up in such a way where He'd be slaughtered on a cross in your place, that He would become your substitute and pay the price, the penalty of your sin. He would do this for you while you hated Him, while you were His enemy. He would still do that for you. So turn your back on self. This is not about you turn from self, deny self, and turn to God. That's repentance. And then Put your faith in what Jesus did for you on the cross, and you will be saved. You say, Jacques, am I good to go now? I don't know. Nowhere in the Bible am I told to give people affirmation of salvation. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But I can tell you The only way of salvation is Jesus Christ, and the only way of turning to Christ is to turn your back on self and put your faith in Him and Him alone. Because by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scriptures alone, for God's glory alone, are you created and saved eternally. And for those of you who search, keep on searching because you will find. For those of you who knock, keep on knocking, and the door will be opened. For those of you who ask, who desire and thirst after God, you will be satisfied. But contrary to our culture, salvation is not a quick fix. It's not a check the box. It's not a quickly say these words. It's not that. It's unconditional giving of yourself to God. If you can say, I'm no longer my own. I've been bought with the blood of Christ. If you can say that because you know it, then you are saved. Amen. Amen.